When I was a kid, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. It was not a pipe dream. I was going to do it. And in it, it, living in Denver, we were so close to the Air Force Academy down in Colorado Springs, I was able to visit it when I was a kid to take tours. I was hooked. I was going to be a fighter pilot. Started looking at the things that I needed to do in order to be a fighter pilot at like age seven. I was like, yes, I will do that. I can do that. I started memorizing things. I started working on things. I Anybody know what the Jane's Handbook of Aircraft Recognition is? Anybody know that? I started memorizing stuff out of this. Okay, you ready? I can tell you that an F-14A Tomcat is powered by two Pratt & Whitney TF-30 turbofans, each producing 20,900 pounds of thrust each for an effective ceiling of over 50,000 miles, or no, feet, sorry, 50,000 feet, and a top speed of Mach 2.34, but in 1987, they introduced it with new engines, the General Electric F-110 turbofans, which had a better thrust-to-weight ratio and upped the effective speed to Mach 2.36. Okay, that's the kind of junk that's still floating around in my head here, folks, okay? If you wonder why I seem distracted, it's because those things just come to the surface sometimes. Okay, I, but I really wanted to do this. I joined the Black Sheep Squadron at the Centennial Airport Civil Air Patrol. Yes, they're actually named the Black Sheep Squadron. It's not a joke. And I watched tons of movies, which, of course, just added to my base of knowledge. You know, very, 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 very um, um, authentic and, and, and accurate movies like Top Gun. <laughs> and Iron, yeah, even more accurate movies like Iron Eagle. Um, yeah. And while Top Gun may have always held, like, the top spot in my heart, despite its campiness and kind of, you know, like, weird interaction between Maverick and Iceman, um, The Right Stuff was another one of my favorite movies. Anybody seen this movie? It's a story, it, it's, a great, it's a great movie, and it's the story of the test pilots who were working to get an aircraft to fly faster than the speed of sound. And this was a, I mean, we, we don't think about that as being a big deal at all anymore, but that was a huge deal. And one of the reasons it was a huge deal is, is not only was it kind of this magic number that everybody could seem to get really close to, but nobody could surpass. When you got under, under aerodynamics of the age, when you started getting towards that part, your aircraft started doing crazy things. It stopped operating the way that it should. And you'd start, and, and the story is how they're trying to deal with these 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 wacky physics that are starting to take over, and and how they're th these these planes that they're flying, like the vibrations of getting close to that magic number of like 735 miles an hour when you break the speed when you break the speed of sound. There's this vibration that would start to literally rip the aircraft apart, you know, and they start losing pilots and they they're losing aircraft and. And, and, you know, will we keep trying this, or is this just kind of some pipe dream that nobody's ever going to get to? And at the climax of the movie, one of the pilots is nearing this, and everything's kind of starting to go funky. And, and he, in the moment of inspiration, he does something that seems very foolish. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the aircraft 
to coast up through the barrier. They're trying to lift the nose of the aircraft and get it to glide up through. Well, when you when you are when you are trying to bring the nose of an aircraft up, you pull back on the yoke and it brings the nose up. Well, for some reason that is just not working and in a moment of inspiration, he does the opposite thing. He pushes the stick forward, which is going to supposedly send this thing into a nose dive and the exact opposite happens. Because of the way the aerodynamics are working, because of like just the funkiness of what's going on, he pushes the stick down, it actually levels the plane out, and it breaks the sound barrier for the first time. And then you get a wah, and wild cheers, and credits, and woo. Okay? Now, that's historically inaccurate. It's not what actually happened. Okay, actually, Chuck Yeager is a guy that did it. They've interviewed him numerous times, and he's like, that's not it's not that simple <laughs> okay it was not just i went in a moment oh i will push the stick down instead of pull the stick back he said but but it was he said i it was the the idea was in kind of a moment of inspiration i went what if everything operates upside down now what if everything operates in reverse now what if in order to get to this thing i have we have to kind of throw out conventionally what we know and operate in reverse Since we're moving into a complete, the, the quotes that I've heard from me said basically, since we were moving into a completely different realm, you have to operate in a completely different way and lose your old assumptions, not only to survive, but to be able to move unhindered. And I think the same is true with a disciple of Jesus operating in the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus begins his first and his largest block of teaching in Matthew, this seems to be the prevalent message. The kingdom of heaven is in your midst. It is a truly unique way of life eternal. You've never been here before. We are moving into previously uncharted territory, and our old way of understanding is not going to suffice any longer. And Jesus takes the controls as he teaches, and seemingly makes them work backwards. He turns conventional wisdom on its head. He turns the idea of kings and kingdoms up on their head. He turns the idea of what it means to be a citizen of a kingdom up on its head. He turns the ideas of power and of strength and of wealth and of life and of purpose and seems to take them all and do what I was talking about with the flight stick. Where, where it looks like this is the stuff that's going to put you in a nosedive and make you crash. All of a sudden, this is what allows us to fly free and unhindered in God's reality. And he turns it all on its head and says, no, no, no. I know you think that this is upside down, but this is really right side up. This is the way a citizen of heaven exists and moves fast and free in my reality. By the way, my vision went to 2200 in like seventh grade. And so I gave up on the dream of being a fighter pilot because I couldn't even, I wouldn't have even been able to fly like civilian commercial. It's kind of ironic now because LASIK could fix that for me like that. But, you know, such as it is, I chose a much more passionate and white knuckled profession, ministry. Okay. 
by the office and you hear danger zone blaring, you just know what's going on, all right? You're just getting ready for another day in ministry, right? Jesus has noticed all these crowds that are forming around him. And so he does something. They're, they're, they're coming in response to both this message that is very electrifying in its own sense. It has the makings of Messiah in it. It's, it's all over the place, right? But, but more than just being a great message, he is backing it up with healing power that is validating it, okay? And this is what's really drawing people in. It's not just, not just that he's talking about the kingdom, but that he's actually starting to make kingdom a reality, a possibility. He is one who is able to heal infirmities, and, and everybody's going, we haven't seen anything like this a long time. Long, long time. In fact, I don't know that we've ever seen anything quite like this. And so they're coming from all over the place. You know, Matthew makes it real clear. They're coming not just from the, from the Galilee region, but now they're coming out of Jerusalem. They're coming out of Judea. They're coming out of Syria. They're coming from across the Jordan, which the language there across the Jordan isn't just a geographical thing. It is a cultural thing. If you're across the Jordan, you are not Israel. And Matthew's kind of sneaking it in there going, hey, remember all those talks about how like, remember all those talks about how like, God is going to establish his throne and, 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 and the, the waters of Zion are going to stream out to the nations and the nations are going to start trickling in, you know, to, to see what God is up to. That's actually happening. So he's kind of throwing that out there. He's saying, hey, look at this. Even, even then, the nations, were, the nations were streaming to worship and to, and to listen to God's holy one. And Jesus does this really interesting thing, okay? Because you would think, if you're gathering a crowd, you would want to stay where the crowds are. And Jesus doesn't stay where the crowds are. He goes up outside of town, and he sits down on a mountain. Now, you might say, why, why would you do that? Well, the reason that you do that is it's time to draw distinctions between those who are just interested onlookers, those who think this is a novel idea, those who are really amazed at the fact that he can teach and heal and do all of these things, those that are excited about what he might do, those that are looking to get on the bandwagon. Hey, when we go kick out the Romans, I could say I was there. It's time to draw distinctions between those people and those who are willing to actually disciple themselves to Jesus, those who are actually willing to say, okay, you're moving out into the countryside. That doesn't make any sense to me, but I believe in you. And so wherever it is you're going to go, I will follow you out there. And so realize that, that, that this crowd may not be as big as you have it pictured in your mind. Because you see all these big crowds, but then all of a sudden it says, Jesus saw the crowds, he leaves and goes up, and his disciples go up with him. Crowds don't go up with him. But some out of those crowds decide to go up there with him. And he ascends to the top of the hill. He sits down. And with those who have followed seated around him, he begins to outline the character and the life of a kingdom citizen. 
And there, there are so many images Matthew wants to spark in our imagination, kind of setting the scene here. Jesus' posture is both that of a rabbi and a king. He's sitting in the place of teaching with his students. He's sitting on the throne with his subjects gathered around them. You see images of this hill outside of Capernaum in Galilee becoming like Mount Sinai, where God gathers the 12 tribes around and he delivers the covenant and the law. Or maybe we imagine it's like the prophets portrayed. Elijah going to Mount Horeb and getting the, getting the, uh, the, 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 the presence of God among him and getting empowered by the presence of God. Or maybe even more, the Mount of Zion, where David's heir would sit, where the presence of God would rest and his blessings would flow like streams of water to, to refresh Israel and the nation, and the nations would stream in, right? And Matthew says, hey, it's all of that and more. Jesus is acting like Moses, but he's not just a good teacher delivering another law. Jesus is acting like David, but he's not just another king giving an inauguration speech. He's certainly not lying about the numbers or, you know, accusing the media of lying about the numbers. Okay. That's the only political statement I'm going to make today. Let's just keep moving. No, no, no. This is God's son. More than Moses more than David, more than any Messiah you could have thought about. This is God's son, and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, announcing that with this work, with this new surpassing covenant of God, and this wonderfully upside-down world that he's talking about, that is actually becoming reality, and that these followers have been drawn into it. In order to move with Jesus... They're going to have to understand how they operate in this new kingdom. And, and the first assumption that has to be renovated, the first upside-down thing that needs to be right-side-up in their head, is that this new kingdom is filled with a relationship between holy identity and holy ethics. And unfortunately, the world that they live in, much like the world that you and I live in, has placed ethics first and identity second. If I do the right outside things, then somehow the inside character in me will improve. The world that Jesus was living in and the world that was predominating the thought in Israel right now was the idea of relative purity. The more pure you are, the closer that you can move to God. And you think about all the people that he's healed and you think about all the people that, that, that he is he has been spending time with, and you have to realize it's more than just that, that because of their, their status that they were probably poor or they were probably stressed out or they were probably kind of on the margins of society. They were considered to be on the margins of God. You could not actually have a full experience with God if you were crippled. You could come sort of close, but you couldn't come all the way. You could, you could come sort of close if you were a, a diaspora Jew or you were kind of a mix of Jew and Gentile. You know, your parents didn't get married back in the day. You could come sort of close, but you couldn't come as close as a full-blooded Jewish person. If you were female, you could come sort of close, but you couldn't come all the way in. Relative purity. Based on outward stuff. 
And Jesus is going to turn that on his head and say, no, 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 no. It's not the outward ethics, and it's not the, it's not the outward stuff, and it's certainly not all of the righteous acts that you do that allow you to come in. You must embrace the identity that God has given you first. And that's where he goes. See, when the law, and, and, and this is not a new thing, okay? The, I, it got so backward, and we laugh, I, I don't know, we chuckle at the Pharisees, we chuckle at their mindset of like, how did this all get reduced to a whole bunch of like rule keeping for you? Okay, and it's really easy to do that, and then forget to like look at ourselves and be like, hey, guess what? We do that all the time too. We've reduced this to rule keeping. We've reduced this to Sabbath observance. We've reduced this to like make sure that I go to church and make sure that I pray enough and make sure that I do this enough, make sure I do that enough. None of that matters if it's not rooted in identity first. That's where it needs to be rerooted all the time. And that's what God has always been doing. When the law was first given at Sinai, it was couched not in ethics first. It was couched in identity first. It was couched in covenant first. I think, I think, sometimes I think we have this really selective memory about this encounter with, with Israel and God at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus. We forget he does not start by throwing out all the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. That's not where it begins. We may remember the Ten Commandments most, but there's an entire chapter before he even gets into that where he just talks in Exodus 19 about how he is bestowing a new identity on his people that he loves. That's where he starts. Based out of this redeemed relationship that God has given them, they, among all the nations of the earth, are going to be exclusively his, his treasured possession, his child, his bride. It's even marriage language. Like the, the, the words in Exodus 19 are pulled and are still used in, in most traditional Jewish marriages today. Why? Because th that's what that was. It was, the, it was the most intimate, most significant covenant that anyone could enter into. And why would the physical marriages of Israel not mirror the spiritual relationship that they have with God? Okay? It is out of that identity that the order in which they operate comes. And what they do is generated out of who they already are. And it's out of a refusal to embrace who they are that the, that the inability to keep covenant keeps coming up. Okay? They don't see themselves as exclusively gods, so they follow after other gods. They cannot see themselves as a people wholly devoted, so they're a people divided. They cannot see themselves freed, so they enslave themselves to political and spiritual masters. From Elijah to Jeremiah to Malachi, the message that keeps coming to Israel and later to Judah over and over and over again starts with, remember who you are. You've forgotten who you are, and so you're acting this way. Remember who you are, therein you will act accordingly. But that's always the problem, isn't it? Even when they know who they are, they can't accept it as who they are. It's who they're working to try and be. Even when they got it, they don't got it. The world they know, the 
the world we know, actions are the baseline that create identity. You work in order to achieve status. You do in order to attain and in order to be. The more you observe the law, the holier you are, the closer you come to God, the more of his blessing you can receive. And this is what Jesus is turning right side up again. By once again starting at identity. This is who you are in the kingdom. He pronounces God's blessing on the unlikely. He restores them to who they were always intended to be, but had forgotten. And blessed is still probably the best way to put it, okay? We, words like happy or fortunate or, you know, whatever have been tossed around, but it's not random chance or positive emotion that makes you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It is a blessing. It is bestowed from outside their own capacity by the king of the kingdom, by the king of the realm that makes them who they are. And we have to realize that Jesus' words are doing more than identifying a kingdom citizen, okay? And just, you got to hang with me here because this is really interesting and really amazing. And, but it's more than just, ooh, wow, what a neat thought, Okay? See what God is doing here and see what God is doing, not just to these people on a hill a long time ago, but see what God is doing to you and me every time we read these words. Because Jesus is not just Moses giving a law and Jesus is not just David inaugurating a kingdom. Jesus is the son of God. And moreover, if I, if I mix a little bit of John in here, Jesus is the living word. And what happens when the living word of God speaks? When the living word of God speaks from the very, very first moment in creation, creation happens. The living word of God speaks and it becomes reality. Okay? Like creation, the living word is on the hilltop in Galilee, and he is speaking reality into existence. Like the creator, he is shaping and molding the identity of the kingdom citizen with each blessing. There's a scholar, John Stott, and he reflects on the blessings that Jesus pronounces in the Beatitudes, and he notices that they're cumulative and that they're creative. I think it's amazing. They build on one another to create a full identity. They're not merely a list of traits, that some people have and some people don't, things that some people might be skilled in and some people are not. It's not the mark of some elitist set of Christians that, that, that you know, most of us can only look at from afar and be like, oh, that'd be nice if I could get a little bit more of that. No, it is the reality woven by the Holy Spirit into every disciple. That's what this is. It's both a blessing bestowed and a responsibility given because it is created in us, and it is what the enjoyment of God's rule actually looks like in our lives, and it's what's given to us. Know what happens when we read these not as isolated characteristics, but as connected creation. As Jesus blesses, he creates the kingdom citizen from the ground up. Listen to it this way. You are blessed, Jesus says, when you embrace the reality that you are completely unable to attain your own righteousness, that you're completely dependent upon God to redeem you. To only these people is citizenship and participation in heaven's rule given. 
You are blessed, then, Jesus says, when you not only acknowledge that spiritual poverty, but when that reality grieves and upsets you, when you agonize and wrestle with it, because it's in that grief that God's great compassion moves to assure you that your story is not over, that he is mighty to save, and that his power is at work within you, that the struggle for righteousness in you and in your world is not in vain. And you can be comforted. You are blessed when being found in God's amazing redemption, you start to have a realistic and humble and meek view of yourselves and others. Then you won't lose your true inheritance, chasing to possess a false one of pride. And you're blessed when you're willing to let God drown your ambition in his fullness. Because it's then that you're going to find the rest and filling that your body and your heart and your mind and your soul are craving. You're blessed when realizing how much mercy God has poured out on you. You begin to pour mercy out on those all around you. Now you will see how powerful of a change agent mercy can really be. You are blessed when filled with his fullness. You're no longer divided in the devotions of your heart. You're finally able to be pure, to see without adultery of the eyes the goodness of of God's way. You're blessed when being reconciled by God. You start to imitate his reconciliation in your life. You bring the fullness of his shalom. You bring the fullness of his peace to those around you. Your work will not be futile, and you will start to catch glimpses of a world beyond your wildest imagination. The kingdom of heaven made real. And you're blessed when that shalom that you fight to embody gets rejected even violently you always knew you were different you always knew that you were distinct you always knew that you were made holy by what god has given you and this is just more proof that you've been brought into that inheritance and that kingdom you're especially blessed when the religious folk will want to string you up because you're less concerned with following the status quo and more concerned about embodying the king you now stand on the shoulders of the prophets, in the halls of the faithful, and in the presence of your king. Have you ever read these blessings quite like that? Do you hear the identity that God is creating for you? Moreover, do you have goosebumps yet? When you think about what God is up to, not just thousands of years ago, but what God is shaping in you and I right now now as that word is brought out he is creating an identity for you today right here to step into and walk it out because these pronouncements are reality shaping we're empowered not by our own efforts but by who Jesus says we are even when we can only see it in part this is the way that it works here we stop worrying about living to obtain the blessing of Jesus, and we start living out of the blessing that he has already given. Moreover, if we live out of that blessing, it's not going to be a private endeavor. No comment would be more hurtful, I think, to a Christian than the words, but you're no different than anybody else. Think about that. If, if there's something you really want to cut me to the quick with, <laughs> 
Yeah, but you're no different than anybody else. How conflicted are we about this idea of being distinct, of being different, of being holy, of living, act, of actually living out of this identity? Modern society, like, we have to be peculiar. We have to be different. We have to be distinct. It is the essence of what a disciple of Jesus is. It's a different kingdom. It doesn't look anything like any of the other ones. It's new territory, and you've never been there before. It's going to look different. And it's going to look different to people who have never been there before. They're going to scratch their heads and go, I do not understand you. At which point you get to say, come and see. And you think about it, like modern society has taken social justice and environmental consciousness and global ethics to all new heights. And the world is boasting of its enlightenment. And yet we only need to journey for a little while to realize how dark it really is in our world. It does us no good to deny our need to illuminate the dark spaces that's what light does and it's who we are so it's what we'll do i mean likewise the world around us manifests a constant tendency to deteriorate and spoil generation after generation rise up with new hopes new hubris new dissatisfaction we're going to change the world and then we slowly sink into the same corruption because the world can't help itself. It's, it's, it's what it does. It decays. It breaks down. And it does us no good to deny the responsibility that we have as citizens of the kingdom of heaven to arrest or at least hinder the decay around us. Because that's what salt does. And that's who we are. Yeah, that does mean kind of stepping into that decay in order to arrest it, to change it, to shape it. That's what salt does. It's who we are. It means stepping into the dark in order to illuminate it because that's what light does, and that's who we are. I've heard it said that the most common questions asked of the Sermon on the Mount are first, is it relevant? And the second, is it attainable? And, and if all we've said isn't enough for you to feel in your hearts that Jesus' words are real and relevant to you today, I don't, I don't know what else we can do there, Okay. But that other question, is it attainable? Boy, that's something else entirely. You know, because I'm, I'm painting this great picture for you, and you're like, great, that's fantastic, Travis. But you know what? Can I just pause you for a second in your sermon? I can't do that. I know. I know. But can I also remind you that if you're saying I can't do that, it's because you forgot the first thing that Jesus said. Blessed are you when you have come to that reality. Because now the door is open for me to do that. In you, through you. So if any time you find yourself tripping over these words in the sermon going, I can't do that. Jesus goes, great. Go back to the beginning and read that part again. Remember who you are. Okay, now let's come back to how you live. Who you are starts with the fact that if you have the realization that you can't do this on your own, fantastic. Because this is the part where now you are clay in my hands for me to shape and mold and create you into everything that I intended you to be. And you just keep coming back to that. And you keep wrestling with that. And you keep watching for more of me in that. 
and I will keep being the king who creates new creation in you. I mean, it's so easy to look at my track record and even see these characteristics, much less Jesus' words, as just, just one. You know, and, and I've seen many people come up with creative ways to accommodate the Sermon on the Mount to our low levels of moral attainment, okay? That involves putting action first, identity second. It's really easy to do that. And I've heard many people, many times celebrities, just kind of talk glibly about how self-evident the truths in the Sermon on the Mount are, how it's nothing different than what's espoused by all religions, how easy it is to make it a rule of life. And I begin to wonder if they've ever actually tried to live it. Sometimes I wonder if they've actually read it. Because it's so much different than just doing or not doing things. Church, I believe that we are called to live somewhere else than easy discipleship or unattainable righteousness. Like there's a tension in the middle there where God is creating. That's what he invites us into. It's that moment of entrance into that new uncharted territory that we've not seen before. I believe that we can live Jesus' words. I believe that we can attain that righteousness, but the only way that we do it is allowing ourselves to go back to that core in spirit again and again. And we let him build our identity again from the ground up. Now, maybe every morning, maybe every hour, maybe every minute. I don't know. It depends on the situation, right? But how often are you willing to come back and let him rebuild you from the ground up? That's kind of the key, isn't it? Every day we got to be honest about who we are on our own. Every day we have to choose to embrace what Jesus says about who we are and let that be more honest. Let that be more true. Let that be more to the point so that he can empower us to act on it. And when we don't, we come back to him we say, please help me remember who I am again. And we let him pour his grace out all over again because it is his joy to do so. Jesus never gets tired of having you come back and say, can you remind me who I am again, please? He never gets tired of that. It is his great joy. And we get a chance to do that right now. We're going to prepare ourselves to come to the table. We're going to remember who Jesus is, and we're going to ask him to remind us who we are and let him once more pronounce blessing over us today and make it reality again. And so as Ian comes up to share some thoughts from the table and as we prepare to take the bread and as we prepare, prepare to take the cup, ask Jesus that question today. Can you tell me who I am again?